0: Okay, we will continue on from that this Sunday. Uh, still on the third chapter of John. As we said, we stopped at a more or less arbitrary place. Scholars are differ, differ as to whether Jesus continues to speak here or as to whether the author is inserting his own comments. Both opinions are widely held. Perhaps a majority feels that the that, the, uh, that Jesus does continue to speak. Whether or not uh, that's true, Nicodemus disappears, to whom Jesus has been speaking. His last uh, appearance is in verse 9, when he asks, how can these things be? And Jesus picks up, this is after he has spoken of the new birth and has used the comparison of the wind and the sound. And we will pick up from this point after Nicodemus asks, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Implied here, by the way, I think it's safe to point out, is that Nicodemus should have known. In other words, that this is not a new thing that is being taught. This is part of the esoteric teaching of the Jewish people, and that uh, as Master Kirpal used to say, ministers are supposed to know how to leave the body and how to help others to do that. And uh, Nicodemus was a member of the Jewish religious establishment of his day, and he was supposed to know. There's a little bit of sarcasm here, perhaps in response to, to a more credulous, more incredulous than necessary question. How can these things be? The, Jesus is more or less saying, don't you know anything? You know How can you say, ask a question like that? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen and you receive not our witness. Note also the plural here. Who is the we? Occasionally in the course of the Bible the plural first person pronoun is used uh, in a in very odd places. Here it certainly implies that Jesus is speaking as a member of a group not as one unique individual. Uh, if I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven but he that came down from heaven, even the son of man which is in heaven. Here the Greek language in which this gospel is written and in which all of the New Testament is written, definitely implies, through the use of the tenses, that uh, Jesus has already ascended into heaven, in addition to having coming down. In other words, that going up into heaven is something that uh, he is in the habit of doing. As we saw last Sunday, um, there is definitely, there was definitely implied in the initiation experience that was available uh, in esoteric Judaism of that time, and which there is excellent evidence that Jesus gave, uh, included a technique for leaving the body and ascending into heaven during lifetime. And that is definitely Professor Smith, who who, is, uh, who did the research which we used last time, uh, Quoted, cited this verse as one of the canonical evidences, that is, as one of the evidences in the Bible that we have, that this was implied. Because it, it doesn't mean, the traditional Christian belief in regard to this verse is that the ascending up into heaven happened once after the resurrection. And it's described in the Bible later on that Jesus went up bodily into heaven. But that appears to be a reading back onto something that... Um, did not mean that in the original, which, as we will see, is one of the keys to understanding the Gospels um, accurately. Is a recognition that this happens, this reading back of a later theological viewpoint uh, onto something that Jesus said during his lifetime that in reality meant uh, something quite different. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And here we get to the heart. The next few verses are perhaps the essence, are cited as the essence of the traditional Christian belief. And I'll read them, and and they are of the utmost importance, both for an understanding of what Christians have traditionally believed about Jesus, but also uh, as a... To understand what Jesus was really saying and teaching, because the two are not necessarily the same. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Now, these are I think, its safe to say that no verse is quoted more often than John 3.16, the one that reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Uh, in order to demonstrate the essence of the traditional Christian belief, When I was given a Bible, my first Bible in Sunday school class at the First Baptist Church in Beverly, Mass., when I was six or seven, uh, the Sunday school teacher very sweetly wrote John 3.16 on the flyleaf, and I immediately looked up and read this verse. And uh, this is perhaps the central verse of the whole Bible according to the uh, traditional Christian viewpoint. I would say that it is close to being, along with a few others, as central a verse as there is from the esoteric viewpoint as well, but it's important to grasp what it is that Jesus is saying here, as well as the context in which he is saying it. Now, he is still alive. He is talking to someone who is approaching him as a truth seeker in his lifetime. He has just given him a discourse on initiation, uh, which we went into last Sunday on the new birth, and he is now, this has to be understood as a commentary on what he has already said, as an elaboration and a commentary. It is not, in other words, legitimate to understand this as a theological discussion um, as it would have been made after Jesus had been put to death, and then uh, the other events occurred which Christians generally read into happening in order to understand this verse. It, is, it just doesn't measure up to that. That's not its purpose. and could not have been its purpose in the context of which Jesus was saying. So it perhaps would be helpful to go over what Christians mean generally when they say believing in Jesus, or believing in him, or even believing in the name. Of the only begotten Son of God, and then to try to understand what Jesus probably meant by that. There is a there is a whole theological framework. We mentioned last Sunday the uh, the evangelical understanding of the new birth, and this theological framework is what is put onto that conversion experience. But it exists independently of that also. It exists. It is the the basic structure of the Catholic Church as well and of the mainline Protestant churches except for the most liberal. And even the most liberal have some sort of development of this. And that is, first of all, that man, there is a a basic understanding of the universe that goes something like this. That man is fallen. That he's sinned. He was created in the image of God, but he sinned. Therefore, he cannot relate to God directly. So that God set up the first, a sacrificial system, system in which atonement somehow could be made by killing somebody else. Okay? I don't mean to be crass, you know, in, in, or loaded in, in, in uh, recounting these beliefs, but truly speaking, this is what it involves. Uh, a Series of animal sacrifices were set up, as we saw a few weeks back, throughout uh, certain books of the Old Testament and a very elaborate ritual, and uh, a whole for certain sins, certain kinds of atonement were required, and so forth. This went on for thousands of years. Finally, when Jesus was born, uh, the whole point of his birth was that he could grow up and then die. And in dying, that sacrifice took the place of all the others, so that by accepting that sacrifice, That is, by saying, yes, God, I accept the fact that Jesus died for me, uh, and I thank you for it, by saying that, um, that constitutes belief in Jesus. It also includes other things like believing in his resurrection, too. But the central thing about it is the grasping of the fact that Jesus died for us so that uh, we may be saved. In other words, just as the animal died to atone this or that particular sin, so Jesus died to atone for all of the sins. Okay. Now, this is what is meant by belief in Christ historically. If you study the Apostles' Creed, for example, you find a very peculiar phenomenon. This is quite an ancient creed. It begins, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, And in Jesus Christ, his son, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, etc. not a word about what he did in between his birth and death. Nothing. He was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, as though it happened the following week. And so that there is nothing... The point about Jesus, in other words, by this belief, is that he died. And what he did during his lifetime, including his teaching, is really held of very little value. This is the inescapable conclusion that um, is uh, forced on us, you know, by through a careful study of these things. Okay, now this, this is what is called vicarious atonement. And this is the belief that traditional Christians, whether they're Catholic or evangelical or mainline Protestant, tend to read back onto these verses that we have just read. And they see them in this light. But just as we discovered uh, in our study of the Old Testament that the prophetic tradition, when divorced from the priestly tradition, is actually seen to be saying something vastly different from the priestly tradition, and uh, something, in fact, diametrically opposed. So if we go back to these verses and consider them in the context of a living master saying them, then we come up with something really very different, something in fact which is, uh, could be said, allowing for the difference, as Master Kripal used to say, of language, of religious style, you might say, of the particular words the holy man chooses to use, something that could be said and has been said in different words by any of the living masters that we are familiar with. Okay, let's go back to the lifted up. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, the story of Moses in the wilderness that Jesus is referring to here, uh, there's somehow or other, I forget the exact context, and I didn't look it up for today, but uh, the children of Israel, during their 40 years wandering in the wilderness, had managed to displease God, not for the first time, And uh, snakes were sent and were poisonous and were biting them. And people were dying and Moses begged God to do something about it and he told him to make a brass serpent and to hold it up. And anyone who looked on that would be healed. So Moses did that and it worked, according to the Bible. That's a fairly straightforward recapitulation of that story. Jesus is saying here Using this as an image is saying that the Son of Man, now, this term Son of Man that Jesus used all the time is really an interesting term. It was, When I first started reading the Bible uh, on my own, I was astounded that Jesus used this term. I had always understood that his title was the Son of God. And, and yet he himself, I think, hardly ever, if ever, uses that title referring to himself. It's used elsewhere in the New Testament by other authors, but I don't think that it is used by him personally ever. He continually refers to himself as the son of man. Now, son of man is a Hebraism. Okay, uh, It means man. The son of man is a man. There's no other meaning to it, really. It's a, it's sort of a round-the-way uh, way of saying, a round-the-bush way of saying. So what he's saying is the man. A man, in other words, Uh, a man in whom God was working, but not distinguished in any other way from other men, Uh, so a man has to be lifted up. And once he is lifted up by God, then those who believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. In other words, those people who recognize that God is working through a particular master will get the fruit of that recognition, which is... A concept that we are very familiar with, um, which is, in fact, the this, this central, essential teaching of Sant that first comes the recognition of God working through the human pole, and then comes the fruit of that recognition, which is ultimately, is indeed eternal life. And notice the word here is perish, is used several times, which means literally die. And uh, in this context, is used quite obviously, rather than condemned to hell, which is what would, in the Christian tradition, would be the logical use here, uh, but quite, I think, once we have grasped the context, quite obviously means uh, we'll not again enter into the wheel of death and birth, that that will not be an option that we will have. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In the Greek, in the original, that really is not a personal pronoun. It doesn't read, he gave his only begotten son. It reads, he gave the only begotten son. That's the best reading. Um, There are a lot of manuscripts that say his, but apparently this was a change introduced quite early by scribes who thought it was better than the but the oldest manuscripts do read the, so that the mo- most modern translations would say that. What is the significance of that? Well, not much, except that, as we saw when we were doing the first chapter of John, we and we took up the verse, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Uh, we saw very clearly, I think, that the only begotten Son is not the Son of Man, Okay, although the Son of Man is the one through whom the only begotten Son is working. But the only begotten Son is the Word itself. But there's nothing else that it can mean. That that is the Son. The human pole is another thing. And as Master Kripal, um always said, Jesus differentiated between the Son of Man and the power working through him. And here he has done this very clearly. In the space of two verses he has used the term son of man to indicate that is man to indicate uh, the human pole that is being lifted up so that people may recognize the power working through him and then he is using the term son without the uh qualifying thing of man so that it refers back to god in other words he is using the title son of god here in a roundabout way to indicate the power itself, the two are really very clearly differentiated if we read carefully and closely, so when God is giving now this term is understood again through the the um, the screen you might say or the cloud of the doctrine of vicarious atonement, okay that God gave his only begotten son means he gave Jesus to die okay now if we think about it, this is from God's point of view, this doesn't really amount to very much. I don't, again, mean to be to belittle beliefs that have been held by, by many people over a long period of time and are very sacred. And there is truth in that belief, too. Uh, there is truth in the idea of vicarious atonement. It is not an untruth. As we saw in the Anurag Sagar, the way Kao works is consistently to take things that are true and then separate them from... Uh, the rest of the truth so that they become distorted. So as we will see, there is some truth in the idea of vicarious atonement, and the crucifixion was a part of the deal, and uh, has been with many other masters as well, but all the same, that is not a sufficient explanation of what it means for God to give, for the simple reason that from God's point of view, from the Father's point of view, uh, when the sun dies is precisely the point when he goes back to him so that the giving is in the incarnation itself and it must mean that that the the sun the power okay in some way that we cannot fully comprehend and this is a mystery um, that is also a central mystery of Sant as well than of any understanding of the universe which implies the uh, incarnation of which All of the esoteric teachings and a good many of the exoteric uh, do fit into that category, how that happens. But the Word, the power of God, uh, the only begotten Son of God, when the Word is made flesh, when the Word comes into being in a human pole, then there is definitely a separation and a giving on the part of the Father and a separation and a suffering on the part of the Son uh, which happens is com- remains throughout his life and is the source of the restlessness and the uh, drivenness with which he works to get back to the father uh, through meditation during his life and why he is not does not mind dying very much at the end of it because he knows to whom he is going back so this is the the giving here is the coming into the flesh. Of the Son, that is the word, for the purpose, so that, as we just saw, once He becomes the Son of Man, then the people who believe in Him will not perish. Again, we have the word perish rather than uh, condemned to eternal fire or condemned to hell, but have everlasting life. Again, the question of believing in Him. What does believing in Him mean? Okay, if the Son, if God giving the Son refers to the Uh, coming into flesh of the Word. And if we read this particular section side by side with the first chapter of John, which we read a few weeks back when we began this series, uh, then it will become clear that the two do fit together very nicely. Uh, Then it becomes clear that believing in the Son doesn't have anything to do with accepting theological opinions about him, nor does it have anything to do with believing in a historical way what happened to him uh, in the course of his lifetime as a criterion to whether anyone is saved or not, both of which are not only lead to some very disturbing conclusions about the nature of God, but uh, in addition to which are totally inapplicable to things that Jesus said to people who came to him while he was still alive on earth, but rather to the same principle of recognition. Believing in him means seeing, recognizing that the power of God is working through him. In exactly the same way, and there are instances of this all through the Gospels, too, in which Harnam Singh, whom Sanchi has talked about so often, who saw Master Kripal once in Nabor uh, and recognized him, uh, was later taken by him at the time of his death and given, in other words, everlasting life. and there countless stories in Santana. There is the story of the of the Muslim camel driver in the desert, and the Punjabi mail went by, or some tremendous train, and Master Sawan was on the train looking out through the window, and the camel driver looked up and saw him and instantly understood who he was. And uh, when he died, Master Sawansing came to take him also. There's the central factor in the relation of the of the seeker or the disciple or the child of God with the master is not understanding a whole set of facts which we, which we have the correct reaction to, or the correct opinion concerning, which then certifies that, yes, we are true Christian or whatever we are, so that we can go into heaven, that's right, uh, but rather an understanding instantly that in this person whom we meet, okay, that the only begotten son is working there. And this can happen. You know, that, that man on the train, I mean, the man looking at the train window, saw silencing for about ten seconds. That was a fast train. And yet he knew. And uh, there are many, many stories like that. And there are many stories like it in the Gospels, too, as we will see as we go along. And why is this? Because God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world. Now, the word condemn means judge. It can mean either. Condemn or judge. And translations differ widely in how they scatter the two words, condemn and judge, throughout this section. But we can read it judge, okay, because it clearly differentiates the difference between the positive and the negative power. God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world. That's somebody else's job, you see, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, the world through him is supposed to be saved, not a few people. You see, not just the disciples of any one given master, not even the number of people who believe in any one given master after his death. Both of them are a tiny minority of all the people who have lived in the world. If the purpose of God is to save the world, then uh, I would say that uh, if the traditional Christian understanding of these things is correct, then he has failed very badly, because most of the people since the world began have not believed in Jesus in that sense, and they are, in other words, condemned. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. This sounds heavy, but this is an important verse, and there is a profound psychological truth in it. The key word in that phrase is already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, and this is the condemnation or the judgment. Either word is correct. And if this is what the judgment consists of, this modifies the statement that we just read that he's condemned already. Okay? This is the judgment, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. In other words, we judge ourselves by keeping ourselves away from the light because we don't like it. We prefer that which we already have. And that judgment, which is the only judgment that counts, according to this section, happens already. That is, it happens at the moment of decision. It's not something that is arbitrarily imposed on us by uh, by even the negative power, although there may be a judgment of that sort that comes later. It's only, however, a follow-through of the judgment made by anyone who rejects the light, who rejects, in other words, the only begotten Son, which is the light. And... Uh, this is what is called realized eschatology in the language of biblical scholars as composed to future eschatology. Eschatology means the last things. And uh, parts of the Bible indicate that uh, judgment takes place in the far future, at the end of the world. And there'll be a big thing. And there's no doubt some truth in that too. As we know from the masters, the modern masters, that judgments like that do take place. Um, at the end of the world, as far as we are concerned, at the end of our life. But here, the realized eschatology, the present tense judgment, happens because of we ourselves. We ourselves decide to reject the light, and we reject it not because of any rational decision that we have made, but because we can't stand it. Because what we have made of ourselves through the thousands of lifetimes that we have had available. does not, will not stand the glare. We cannot do it. And that's the judgment. Light is there. We prefer darkness. So, we lose out. Nothing is implied. Of course, this does not. At this point, uh, future lives are not brought into consideration, as they often are not when the modern masters speak too. So, it does not imply anything for eternity. It's a simple statement of fact about the present life. And it's explained, For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. We are protective of our own sins. We like them. We like them a lot. We don't want to lose them. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, or clear, is another rendering, that they are wrought in God. That which he has produced in himself Um, over the period of this life and the lives before it, also has led him to the point where he welcomes the light. And obviously, the Gospels, too, abound in cases of very supposedly very unworthy people, believing in Jesus, falling at his feet, repenting, uh, sometimes maybe not repenting even, but simply loving him. uh, And all of them believe in him in this sense. In other words, they recognize that the power of God is working through him. Whereas the people who are supposedly good, and we will go into this particular aspect of the Gospels later, the people who are supposedly good uh, reject him constantly. So it's not this is not a, a, a simple matter where we can say that good people like the Master and bad people don't. Um, it would be nice to be able to say that for our own our own uh, self images, no doubt, but the fact is that um, Jesus said it, and it 's true that masters come uh, they don't come to the good people, they come for the sinners, and by some very odd business okay a paradox among many other paradoxes, um, sometimes it seems that the sillier and the weaker and the um, less acceptable we are to other people, the more acceptable we may be to the Master, and that's his love, too. Anyway, this is this is what these verses really mean. I think it is fair to say that in the context of the Gospel, in the context of that which we have already studied, and in the context of saint Mat as we understand it through the teaching of the modern Masters, that this is a very important passage, a very central passage, and it... Uh, explains very clearly the psychology, you might say, of how it works. In other words, the new birth happens when someone recognizes the power working in a given human pole, and he comes to that and asks for help, and then the help is given. And if he doesn't do that, if he doesn't come and ask him for help, then he is judging himself. He is not allowing himself to receive the help that is being offered. And this is his own condemnation, and it is not implied, it is not necessary that it be given to him by anyone other than himself. So that is this particular section of the Gospel of John.